The more you learn, the more you realise there is still to learn. This is Sparking Connections, a podcast where two education enthusiasts teach each other about their respective fields of study. My name is Kimberly Wardle, and I have a degree in microbiology from the University of Surrey. And my name is Esme Beaumont, and I'm currently studying for an MPhil in English Studies at the University of Cambridge. Hello everyone, welcome back to Sparking Connections. This week is a science episode, so you can hear my lovely voice. Today we're talking about endemic diseases of the UK and what endemic diseases actually mean and all that good stuff. So Esme, I love to start with a question. You know what an (laughs) endemic disease is? Don't look, don't don't look, you're you're gonna cheat. But do you know, do you have any idea? so I know that a pandemic is worldwide mm-hmm. and oh so, oh see now okay I'm not sure of the difference between epidemic and endemic but they are the different. N yeah the N prefix I think means in so within a country or a, an area something like that mm-hmm. yeah it's sort of I would say it's a disease that is in the country at a regular level it's not emerging it's not a pandemic or an epidemic it's it's Im- emerged and it's here to stay for the most part unless okay. we eradicate it but it's at regular levels so it's defined from this article that i found as the prevalence of disease in, p- in a particular area over a long period of time okay so it's here to stay stay for good can you think of any endemic diseases in the uk just per chance uh, I'm not aware of any that are specifically the UK. Like mm-hmm. any disease that I could think of that exists in the UK, for all I know it exists elsewhere, like I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, it doesn't have to be exclusive. Okay, so like flu, that sort mm-hmm. of thing? Yeah, yeah. So influenza, common cold, viruses, norovirus, adenovirus. And yeah, there's loads and loads of examples. And I've chosen a few to talk about in a little bit. But I just wanted to to highlight that, like I say, it's not an emerging disease. It's one that's already emerged because emerging would be like a sudden outbreak. Okay. And, you know, you're seeing a lot of uh, countries that go through outbreaks of various things, particularly COVID at the moment or SARS coronavirus 2, which is its official name. <clears throat> so mm-hmm. we're seeing a lot of... Uh, coronavirus emerging but as it's around longer and longer it starts to take on that status of being endemic right okay so typically if it's emerging it's appeared where it hasn't before or has been eradicated from and then returns i don't know if there's necessarily an example of that i guess re-emerging diseases in terms of um like sexually transmitted diseases and oh, I suppose yeah, okay. it would count uh, measles as a re-emerging disease in the UK. Mm. Unfortunately, we'll get into that in a little bit. But there's also something quite interesting in terms of determining when a disease be- can become endemic. So it isn't okay. just down to whether the disease appears or the you know whatever the organism appears and infects people. It's actually uh, related to the social aspect of that disease and like the social aspect of whether people think it's acceptable to have that disease for example common cold and this is something that's Mm -hmm. been really bothering me recently 
especially related to, you know, people are scared that they have COVID or they have a cold. To me, I don't want to see you if you have either, right? Mm. I don't want you to come to me and hang out when you have a cold because I'm going to get that cold. But yeah. to many, many people, it's very socially acceptable to, to uh, particularly in the UK, to soldier through and be like, yeah, I have a cold, but it's fine. I can go to work. I can do this. I'm like, no, don't come near me. Do not come near me if you have a cold. Like I say, my example is always when I was at uni, I'd be walking down the corridors. I'm a pretty short person. I've had people sneeze and cough on the back of my head. It's not nice. I don't want mm, it. I don't gross. need it. It's disgusting. Wash your hands. <laughs> <laughs> um, as you can tell, as a microbiologist, I get very riled up about this. So, you know, you have to weigh up. You know, common colds do kill people, but it's not yeah. as common as other viruses, other bacteria. So, therefore, in the public perception, and maybe, you know, the public perception shapes the government's perception of a disease doesn't matter mm-hmm. those those people you know those, that number of deaths is acceptable and that's really quite um an interesting thing to to talk about in terms of ethics i wondered what your thoughts were on that i mean obviously my thoughts on on that is that it's pretty terrible mm. um you never know who has some kind of immunodeficiency or you know some other condition that puts them more at risk yeah and it's just ableist that mm-hmm. that there isn't the same kind of infrastructure in place to deal with that, you know, to prevent vulnerable people from becoming seriously ill from something that, for me, for example, wouldn't be an issue. Right. But it's what we're kind of seeing with COVID to some extent that, mm. you know, people were saying, well, you know, you're young and healthy. What does it matter to you? And it's like, well, it doesn't matter to me if I get COVID, but it does matter to me if I pass it on to somebody who's right. going to become much more seriously ill because of it. Mm. You know, I'll be fine. Not everybody will be. Right, exactly. And it is sort of, yeah, I like it bothers me that people sort of, they only worry about it if they think it's a threat to themselves. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So obviously how like i said how the public perceive a problem Hmm. is usually how the government deals with that problem so a lot of people are pushed through a cold and don't mind um therefore the government's not going to crack down on people having colds and make sure that everybody stays at home if they have a cold Mm -hmm. but because people are so aware of coronavirus at the moment the government really have to push to make sure that people are getting the, the treatment that they need and getting the you know the the social distance that they need and yes they're they're different viruses they they do have you know coronavirus has a much more dangerous impact on the body but the principles are pretty similar to be fair also you know it's not just that people will push through if they've got a cold it's that they have to that you Mm, can't like i mean how many times you know were we told at school that you know you don't miss a day of school unless you're like actually sick yeah and totally. actually sick meant you know vomiting or something serious right something you could you see had a cold mm-hmm. yeah when i was at school i you know like was given certificates in assembly for 100 percent attendance yeah. and it's like it is sheer luck that i didn't get ill much <laughs> and still don't get ill much mm. like there's no you know if i had had a minor cold i 
that was directly encouraging me to go to school anyway right and then you'd get me sick who's part of the problem now (laughs) (laughs) exactly but But like we're yeah and for work as well you're not encouraged to take time off right minor well sometimes you can't sometimes you're not paid to take that time off and you know I feel like that certificate thing kind of brings back some memories because um (laughs) I've never had 100% attendance because I have a chronic illness I had to go to the hospital a lot I was ill a lot so you know to me it's completely ableist because I'm like I could have never achieved 100% attendance because I had appointments and things that I had to go to so yeah it's definitely like built into our society the way that we perceive disease so therefore that plays a huge part in how we view like the acceptance of endemicity so diseases becoming endemic so there's multiple phases of determining whether something becomes endemic so the risk to the population and therefore the public perception and Mm -hmm. how likely you are to quote unquote soldier through this disease and so on but it also determines the level of intervention so diseases can become endemic and still be you know under treatment or mm-hmm. um or vaccinated for or against i suppose you'd call it against <laughs> so in terms of things like hiv you can live a perfectly normal life but you still have hiv it's endemic but you know it doesn't it's into the intervention towards hiv means that you can live a normal life so with epidemics obviously the public response is a lot more immediate so emerging mm. diseases there's on the news you can see and funding comes out of nowhere and all this and all that means that there's an immediate response and oftentimes it is because our healthcare system can't necessarily uh, deal with a uh, epidemic you know the flu epidemic puts the hospitals out of commission every year because there's just not enough staff and beds to accommodate that many people so they always encourage yeah. you know stay at home if you can start don't come into work if you have the flu because you're going to make people who need to you know who are you know compromised and may need to go to the hospital fill up beds that aren't necessary you just need to be careful for other people and what mm-hmm. we're seeing with covid too same yep. thing and it also interrupts things that are quite important so like routine vaccinations can be interrupted because people are like they're like don't come into the doctors unless you really really need to and sometimes people think do I really really need to get a vaccine no because there's no obvious effect but the effect the impact is really really large because that means large groups and large generations of people won't get vaccinated Mm. Um, you're also seeing a lot at the moment with cancer treatment due to covid closing hospitals and stopping people from coming to hospitals a lot of cancer patients who are immunocompromised, aren't receiving treatment, can't go into hospital for consultations, and therefore their treatment is you know, being delayed or cancelled. And that's going to have a huge uh, impact on a patient that has had long-term secondary cancer because they need that regular treatment to keep the cancer down. Yeah. So um, I found a Houses of Parliament document on infectious diseases from 2017 that said mm-hmm. infectious disease is 7% of deaths and £30 billion a year spending. That's what yeah. the impact of infectious disease is on the UK. That's pretty big. Yeah. So 
in terms of emerging or endemic you know that amount of money is massive so you can see that it's kind of preventing or predicting when an epidemic or when a disease might be up and coming becomes like much more important when yeah you know money and healthcare systems can't support mm. so usually something becomes endemic when the risk of that disease is perceived as low yeah like we talked about colds the risk for most for ev almost everyone a large portion of the population is pretty low so mm. then the people that are likely to get the colds are like yeah it doesn't really matter the risk is low so we allow it to continue in our population but things like uh, herpes and hepatitis they're also endemic but there are smaller clusters of people that want to have something done about them so we talked about herpes before in terms of there's just now a cure for or they're working on um, actioning a cure a, a usable cure and you know that's not necessarily big news for everybody. That's not necessarily like, oh yeah, everybody look here, look there, there's a herpes cure in the works. Because it doesn't impact everybody. The risk is low for everybody, except for those who have it. And then they're consciously thinking about it because they're like, do, how am I gonna not spread it? How am I gonna do this? How am I gonna do that? Funding for those things is reduced and the impact overall means that many many people that have a disease that is endemic kind of get pushed to the side not necessarily not treated just you know there's not that huge push to eradicate the disease and because it impacts a lot less people the important thing to remember as well is to think back to our vaccination podcast eradication is the ideal we want to eradicate everything but endemicity when things become endemic proves that it's a lot harder than it looks because again the risk is might be low the perceived risk might be low or people's perception of that disease they might not care it may not seem like we have a lot of diseases in the uk we're quite privileged really here around this place there's a number of uh reasons why a lot of our diseases are kept to quite a low level of risk or not maybe not in the public awareness maybe that's a better way of putting it and first and foremost is our free healthcare. you can go to the doctor you can get treated people aren't scared to get sick they're like oh if i get sick i get sick and then go to the hospital and and you know you'll be fine but then obviously public health in the uk it's a it's a coin of two sides there's people that really really support the healthcare system there's really people that really really hate the healthcare system but there is a lot of controversy on you know deciding whether we should be relying on our free healthcare whether it's doing the right thing whether it's funding the right things so that does play a part in controlling disease in the population there's also a lot of disease in this country that isn't fatal to most people or isn't doesn't have as big of a uh, impact in terms of symptoms so we don't have things like malaria or cholera or dengue which have very obvious symptoms you know dengue has joint pain that causes you to like seize up and um, and cholera we know is a you, you can't really miss cholera it's a very watery diarrhea 
So, <laughs> like, you can't, you know, it's not as impact of a cold or the flu or gonorrhea is very physically present like you can't see it you're not going to be walking around the street with people looking at you going oh you're really ill maybe things like measles and mumps is a bit more obvious because you've got rashes and things but typically if you can't see it nobody cares and that allows disease to become endemic in the uk here because a lot of our disease isn't outwardly presenting in a sort of I don't want to say the word terrifying, but terrifying way, you know, like people vomiting, projectile vomiting, stuff like that. It's not, you know, a lot of that doesn't happen. And then there's also the education aspect. You know, we're taught before coronavirus. You were taught to wash your hands before coronavirus. I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> Everyone was <laughs> taught to wash their hands. And in a lot of hospital settings, there's, you know, um, consciousness on antimicrobial resistance. So making sure we're not over-prescribing medications. There's education of nurses to, to look out for symptoms of MRSA and things like that, hospital infections that could be passed on to other immunocompromised patients. So in the UK, our hygiene education is really, really, uh, really good. If people listen or not is another matter, but we're definitely taught all those things. I wondered if you had any other thoughts on why we might not have more endemic, more obvious endemic disease in the UK. Hmm. I'm not sure because I wouldn't, I wasn't aware, I suppose, that our, A, that we had fewer than some other places, mm. at least other places that are similar economically to us. Mm. And I also wouldn't have necessarily described our education on hygiene and such as that, as that good, but I suppose you know, on the whole, it's, it's presumably very good. Yeah. Um, hmm. I mean, think, um, so norovirus is probably, I think is quite a good one for this. So like food poisoning type illnesses. Right. Can you think of how they're prevented in the UK? I mean, there's high standards for sort of restaurants and places like that mm -hmm. that sell food. And um, we don't have so much... We don't have quite so many outdoor sort of food vendors. Yeah. Like we have some, but they're in specific places. You know, you'll find them in like Camden or the specific markets yeah. and things. But you don't have so much. Like it isn't sort of the default way that everyone gets food. So mm. I guess, A, it's fewer of those mean there's going to be fewer diseases. Like you don't, you, you know, you haven't got you're not so likely to have food kind of left in the sun and that's right. like getting getting infected by things uh, outside. But also the few that we do have are then also pretty well regulated. Right. We have like the food hygiene standards and, and yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, and I guess like our sort of water sanitation and stuff like that are very good. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. So we have a lot of, I mean, we suffered for it back in the 1700s 1800s when we didn't hmm. so we learned our lesson pretty quick that if you dump stuff into a river and then drink that water you're gonna get ill so it's those kind of um, having infrastructure uh, having hospitals that have people in it that know what your resources are in terms of hygiene and and things like that I would say that a lot of the endemic disease in the UK is stuff you've probably heard of 
but not necessarily something that you'd think was very dangerous in a way that means we can't treat it. I mean, some of the diseases, especially for people with HIV, can be fatal without hospital intervention, but that doesn't mean they will they they won't die from it. They'll just they're just at an increased risk of having worse impacts from the from the disease. The kind of diseases that maybe aren't publicised as much are typically endemic diseases because they they exist continually. And as we've seen in the media, the media can't keep up with something that exists continually. They just lose interest and it's not exciting anymore. So I've got a very long list of examples of ones that I think are either endemic or very consistent in the um, increase of infections. An interesting one that I do want to point out is chickenpox. A lot of countries vaccinate against chickenpox. But that's not what we do in the UK. In the UK, we just let people get chickenpox. And that actually has quite an impact. I wondered if you had any thoughts on, or any knowledge of chickenpox in general? Um, not really any knowledge beyond that, supposedly you can only get it once, but I, my mum had it multiple times as a kid, so that's not right. necessarily always true. Mm -hmm. And that not that generally what we say is that a kid gets chickenpox, they'll be off school for a bit and then they'll be fine and they won't get it again. So we just don't worry about it. Right. Fine, as long as there isn't some other condition that's going to make that dangerous to you. Mm -hmm. And given that we tend to get it as children, we might not always know that yet. Mm. Like you yeah, could have something point. as a kid and if that's the first serious, if that's the first thing you get that isn't like that's worse than a common cold mm. and it turns out that it's going to be dangerous for you you don't know that yet yeah so that's exactly. concerning yeah well and also what people don't really think about is the fact that if you have chickenpox early on it can lead to you developing shingles later in life what so chickenpox and shingles are the same virus but yeah the chickenpox virus which is varicella zoster virus i believe is the same virus that causes shingles so if you have chickenpox it the virus hangs out in your nerves for like 50 years and then comes back and it's like surprise it's shingles what the hell because you're immunocompromised potentially when as you get older so then you get shingles so to me it's always baffled that there would be anyone who's willing to have chickenpox because it turns into shingles later in life. But well, why isn't always. that common knowledge? I, I couldn't tell you. It's common knowledge to me. <laughs> so, there. I mean, it's not going to be every person. But, yeah. It, if you're immunocompromised, it increases your risk of having shingles later in life if you've had chickenpox. I can see you breathing very deeply in it. I think it might be anxiety. <laughs> 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 okay so so now we're going to talk a little bit about specific examples of endemic disease in the uk tuberculosis as we know and as is controversially talked about is common in badgers and badgers can spread it to cows and cows can spread it to people and i think badgers might also be able to spread it to people and all that to say you're going to get tb and it's highly infectious. 
very, very infectious. Mere particles of the virus need to be in the air for you to contract TB. And the thing that makes me mad is the fact that they no longer vaccinate for TB here in the UK. <laughs> Baffling, truly. So basically, like we had a case of tuberculosis in our school. Do you remember that? In, in high school? No, I didn't know about that. Yeah, there was a kid who had TB. And my mum called the GP and was like, I want to get my kids test, um, vaccinated for tuberculosis. That's the BCG mm -hmm. vaccine, which causes, you know, the big lump on your arm. And oh, okay, yeah. then it falls off and it's a scar. And the GP was like, no, nah, we don't offer that now. That doesn't make any sense. Nope, doesn't make what, any what, sense. What's whatsoever. their reason? I couldn't tell you. I actually don't really know why the, they would stop vaccinating. Presumably because we're not an at-risk population, quote-unquote. Populations that are at risk are typically intravenous drug users um, and homeless people because of the supposedly lack of hygiene and close quarters. But that came from a government document and it showed that the numbers of intravenous drug users stayed the same and the tuberculosis cases increased. So I put my scientific critical eye on and said, mm, don't know how I feel about these conclusions, but tuberculosis is still around and I'm going to show a map and I'll describe the map for the people listening. But currently the incidence of tuberculosis is decreasing which is good. The measures that the government are implementing are decreasing the number of cases and people who have HIV are particularly susceptible to tuberculosis because tuberculosis is a latent condition. Do you remember that? Do you remember when we talked about that? So latency is the virus exists in your bod for an infinite amount of time. It just hangs out in your body hidden from the immune system. If you have latent TB, it hangs out in your liver, lungs. It hangs out everywhere. I'm pretty sure it hangs out everywhere. It forms these little nodes and the, the virus is in the middle and then it has all the immune cells around the outside and it forms like a, like a bubble around it and it protects it. Um, so it can hang out in your body and then occasionally it will be reactivated and then you'll have an active case of TB. And at that point, you would go and have six months of four different antiviral drugs pumped into your body. Because that's the only treatment. But it's successful treatment, it's just a long treatment. So for HIV positive people, getting tuberculosis is super, super risky because they don't have the immune system to protect uh, to force the tuberculosis into that little bubble. So the tuberculosis just runs rampant and does its thing out in the open. It doesn't, doesn't get pushed into latency, basically. So technically, latency could be seen as a protective mechanism, but it does mean that you would get reoccurring infections, potentially. It's so weird that the government doesn't consider TB worth vaccinating against, because anybody could get HIV at mm -hmm. some point in their life. And frankly, anyone could become homeless at some point in their life. Yeah. So... Why do we sort of go, oh, if you've got HIV or TB, good luck, I guess. Mm. I mean, if you've got HIV or if you're homeless, good luck, I guess. Right. But not, like, not consider or not care about people who could end up in either of those categories later in life. That, that yeah, doesn't totally. No, and it doesn't because um, I think one of the reasons that they give is that 
when you have the the bcg the vaccine if you were suspected to have tb and they tested you you would always come back positive and it could be a false positive because the vaccine reacts as if it's an actual infection so the way that we test for tb and the way that your immune system fights tb are the same so usually we might test viral load or we might test a protein that is produced only when you have an active infection or you might test the genetics of the disease that you've got we can't do any of that for tb at the moment we just test to see if there's presence of tb in your body um, and bearing in mind this is bovine tuberculosis there are like a bunch of different types so when you're vaccinated you're effectively introducing that into your body so your body knows how to fight it which is great but in terms of public health and, and epidemiology if you're going to test a bunch of people to see if they have tuberculosis the people who are vaccinated will come back positive i see the issue mm. but i feel like at least some of that can be mitigated by keeping a record of who's had the vaccine but just because you've had the vaccine doesn't mean it's worked uh, yeah i suppose that's true so you could have active infection and then you'd spend all that money for six months treating them when actually it was mm. just the vaccine that they had that's fair i see the issue mm. but i do think I, I i don't think that just saying yeah, whatever we just went back no definitely not and i would say no that expert, but okay. <laughs> i would say that genome sequencing now hopefully means that we can become better at identifying tuberculosis because i'm hoping thinking that the inactive form of tb in the bcg vaccine is genetically different to a live infection i don't know if that's true i'll look it up and put a link to any information that i find but now that i think about it genetic sequencing could have a good impact and therefore we could vaccinate everybody which is what we want incidence of tb in the general population is going down it's also staying the same in um hiv positive populations but even though it is reduced somewhat it's still in areas of the uk it does have a huge impact in the uk still because there are plenty of areas in the uk that can experience tv so me and esme are looking at a map that is showing england and wales in lovely pretty colors and the east coast of the UK, um, from the border of Scotland all the way down to Kent, is <laughs> testing my English geography, is green. The, all the counties along that edge are green, which means they are a low risk area for tuberculosis. And then as you get further west, the risk increases. And places like Cornwall, Devon, and the border between England and Wales, it becomes a much more high risk area. That means that typically there are animals and humans there that have TB. And then obviously between those two areas of low risk and high risk, there's a sort of 
edge area as they call it and they see cases either every six months or annually so it's not regular cases necessarily but there are still cases there um, we don't have any information for Scotland um, but Wales does see quite a lot of high tuberculosis incidents so overall the UK has TB a fair amount of TB to be fair so who's vulnerable it has a huge impact on the world lots of people in the world will have tuberculosis in their lifetime I think it's a quarter of the world's population yeah a quarter of the world's population has latent TB at least which means they have TB and then it can re-emerge or it can um, reactivate and become a live infection and a lot of times children are very vulnerable to TB because they're they've got little baby weak immune systems but once you have it as a child you're gonna have it forever unless you get treated with antibiotics six months of antibiotics and don't forget antibiotic resistance is a thing so it is important to note that there is highly resistant versions of tuberculosis did you say six months of antibiotics yes. yeah six months of four different antibiotics all at oh one time God. it's a very difficult illness to treat but it is completely oh. curable you can cure it Right. But yeah, so you can get it as a child and maybe you'd have a little bit of a cough and you wouldn't know it was TB and then it would become a latent infection and then when you're older maybe you get quite sick with something else you get HIV you know, there's some other vulnerable situation that you're in and then the TB rises back up and says, I'm here guys here I am infecting people so children typically are vulnerable in the first place and then they can keep uh, they can have a latent infection for the rest of their life that's how a quarter of the world population has a latent infection because people get a little cough when they're a kid and it become it comes later in life you realize that it was tb that you had way back when that's so, horrifying mm -hmm, yeah but it's uh it's the world we live in <laughs> we have to we have to coexist with these microorganisms so as I said, it's very infectious and you can be infected and not be ill. So again, that adds to the latent infection aspect of you could get infected and it would be latent for a while and then you'd suddenly have TB and everyone will be like, where did you get TB from? Who knows? Because you've had it for 10 years and now all of a sudden it's re-emerged. It typically presents with cough and fever and night sweats we love a good night sweat but it's advised that if you're a vulnerable person you would go to the hospital i don't know what you would do if you are not a vulnerable person i would say self-isolate but we all know that that's a newfangled thing for the current climate so you know maybe you'd think that you've you've just got a cold because you've got a cough and a little bit of a fever uh maybe the flu mild form of the flu and then you go to work and then you spread it to all your pals. So I can see Esme has a very stressed face right now. So uh, we're going to keep moving on to the treatment success rate. This is a good thing. We're very, very, very lucky that the treatment success rate is almost 100%. I say 
works well for new and relapse cases so don't forget sometimes even if you treat it can become latent but a lot of times it's when you've got a live infection if you get treated it will be gone over 75 percent of the time which is pretty good there is also forms of tb as i said that are highly drug resistant so there's forms that are mdr or rrtb so they're resistant to a specific subset of antimicrobials the the ability to recover from that the, the ability to to get treated if you've got a resistant form of tb is still increasing we're still following a similar curve to the people who are, are just getting treated normally um, it just means you can't use that subset of drugs. You'd have to use a different one. However, the what is known as XDR, or the completely resistant to everything, TB, that's X drug resistant, so everything drug resistant, kind of seeing some spikes and troughs. It's very hard to predict what... Um, how the treatment is going to be, whether the treatment is going to be as successful. As of sort of 2016, it's just below 50%. And that's an increase from about 2011, where the chance of treatment success was 0%. So we are gradually improving our ability to sort of, if you imagine the four drugs that we're using to treat for a regular person, for a person without resistant TB, those four drugs are great. You just use them, person gets better, and that's it. The next layer is someone is resistant to drug A. So we have to look in our catalogue and see which drugs can replace drug A and do the same thing as drug A, but isn't a TB resistance drug. So you'd swap out A for something else. And, you know, as you can see, or as I've described, that's pretty, pretty effective. You know, it's just, just under 75% of people will see uh, treatment success. The issue comes when all four of those drugs, A, B, C, and D, you're, the, the patient is completely resistant to, and... So you have to swap out every single drug for something else. And it's not even just a drug, any old drug. It's got to do the same job and it cannot be the same class of drug. So we have different classes of antibiotics and typically a class of antibiotics has the same function or role. So if there's resistance to a class of drugs, you're kind of losing out on that role, that impact of that antibiotic that's why resistant tb fully resistant tb can be very difficult to treat is because there's only so many drugs that you can swap in and out you know a can only be swapped so many times b so on so forth so if you're resistant to all the drugs it can be very very difficult to treat but as we are seeing there is an increase in the treatment success rate as i said 2010 2011 i say 2011 2012 maybe 0% treatment success rate. 2015, 2016 went from 25% to about 40%. So we are seeing an increase. And there's actually a reason for that is that TB now, when you get tested, they also test 
the type of TB that you have, aka its resistance profile. So they determine whether your TB is there, whether you have TB, and then also whether your TB is drug resistant, and then they can cater that profile for you as an individual. So how do they do that then? Like, how do they know? I think they run a very specific assay. I think there's, from what I remember, there's a machine that you can cough into. <laughs> so you have a cartridge and you can cough into it and then you close it up and you put it in a machine and the machine analyzes all the, the, the particles and the sputum and then it tells you this is the TV that you have or whether you have TB, and then this is its resistance profile. The technology itself, I can't recall if it's um, like patented, you know, like it's not, it's not free for everybody to use and develop themselves. I think there's a company that actually does that specifically um, because you always got to get money from sick people or make money off of sick people. Um, <sighs> oh, man. Mm-hmm. So there is a way to tell the resistance profile. And usually, if you did it by hand, you would grow the, the bacteria on a plate and then you would take a little bit of that and you would streak it on a new plate and put some little antimicrobial discs. So discs soaked in different drugs. And then if the bacteria doesn't grow close to the if there's a ring around the um disc of no growth then it's sensitive to that drug the drug has killed that bacteria in that area or stopped it from growing in that area which means it's an effective treatment if growth just carries on throughout the plate ignoring the disc then you can see the bacteria doesn't care about that drug the drug doesn't do anything to that bacteria the problem with TV is it takes a very long time to grow, up to six months, in fact. It's very difficult to grow in lab conditions. So while you're waiting for it to grow, someone already has TV and is going and walking around and interacting with people and spreading that tuberculosis. So they've had to come up with sort of new ways of doing that. And, and obviously I've said genome sequencing is helping a lot with that because you can look at the gene profile but only if you know what to look for in the gene profile we know what the gene um, is for a certain resistance to an antibiotic to an antiviral whatever we we have that knowledge we know what the gene profile markers for tb are we don't necessarily know what their variations are so you can have like the general markers you know like how do you know a person is a person because they have features of a person. But you don't necessarily know what that person's sexual orientation is from their genetics or that person's opinion on schooling. You know, it, it becomes a lot more difficult to determine gene variants of things when there's so many variants that you, you know, we just don't have that knowledge. And, and people are researching that knowledge. But it's slow going, especially because tuberculosis is endemic, therefore deemed maybe not as urgent 
to research as some other diseases. Um, so they've deemed the six month full antimicrobial drug treatment as satisfactory for people to recover and therefore the risk is low in the, in the opinion of the governing bodies. Mm. Mm -hmm. So I do want to touch on HIV a little bit. So tuberculosis obviously is a really big one because it's something that we don't necessarily hear about. Um, yeah, so have you heard about TB being a disease of note in the population or not? No. Right, so that's why it's quite interesting because, you know, common, commonly people don't really hear about it. However, we have heard about HIV. And overall, it has been stabilised in the population. And there are treatments for people to live a normal life. Your viral load will be so decreased that you can't transmit necessarily. It can't be picked up on an assay or on a test. So overall, HIV is becoming more manageable and under control. People can live normal lives. But, you know, there is that risk of immunocompromised situations where you pick up something else that could make you really sick. And there's also the stigma still around HIV and again like I say the governing bodies have determined that it's endemic I mean another reason for HIV is, is you can't cure it there is no cure um, and there is no vaccine so we just have to kind of let it be endemic because we can't do anything about it. it 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 lives inside immune cells so if you start destroying immune cells with treatment you're going to make yourself even more ill. A lot of times we've just contented ourselves with sort of a, I don't know what we call it, like a treatment, but it doesn't cure. It just maintains your low viral status. One that is very important, which I really do want to talk about, is measles, mumps and rubella. I've talked about it before. Vaccinations. People aren't getting vaccinated and it makes me really angry because you're making others sick. So I think in the last year, the UK has lost its elimination status for measles, mumps and rubella. We no longer have our measles, mumps, rubella cases, in particular measles cases, under control. No more. Because there has been a sharp decrease in the number of people vaccinating their children and also getting booster vaccines and things like that. The threshold for number of people in the population or percentage of people in the population that are vaccinated is 95% for MMR in general. It's a bit lower for rubella. It's a bit higher for measles, I believe. But on average, you want to get 95% of the population vaccinated so that the that you have, you know, no risk of contracting it. 95%, as we've talked about for herd immunity, means that people who are susceptible to measles but can't get vaccinated will be protected. So if 95% of the population got uh, immunised in England and Wales for measles, mumps and rubella, then they would be able to safely say, you are not going to catch measles or mumps or rubella. And that will protect the people who can't get vaccinated. 
Symptoms include, for all three, high temperature or fever. For measles and rubella, you see a rash. In mumps, you see swollen salivary glands. Um, so it makes you look like you have a sort of distended, swollen neck. Uh, nausea is common for mumps. Measles is common, uh, has a runny nose as a common symptom. And rubella has sore throat. So as you can see, they're kind of all cold and flu symptoms as well. A lot of similar symptoms uh, to diseases that people have deemed acceptable, which is interesting to note. When you vaccinate, you see a decrease in the number of cases and you see improvement in the population in terms of protection from that illness, right? You see an improvement in the number of people getting sick. There's no longer as many people getting sick. And public perception says people are no longer getting sick. Therefore, we don't need to worry about it anymore. When we stop worrying about diseases like this, we no longer vaccinate. And when we no longer vaccinate, surprise, surprise, those diseases come back. Just because we're vaccinating against it doesn't mean that it's going to be eradicated. It doesn't mean it's certain that it's going to be eradicated. It takes a lot more work than just, we're going to vaccinate to eradicate a disease. And then there's also the, the issues with um, sort of a resurgence in anti-vax movement type situations, which means that if you send your kid to school, they are going to be susceptible to catching measles, mumps or rubella. And they will also then pass that on to other people. We're back to that. Are you willing to take the risk for yourself is the wrong question. Are you willing to take the risk for somebody else? The right question. You know, you, you may have a mild form of measles, but if you're going to pass that on to somebody who can't fight it off, who couldn't be vaccinated. And my prime story example is there was a news report that said that someone who hadn't vaccinated their child, their child got measles. They went to the GP and in the waiting room, there was a baby who hadn't been vaccinated yet because they're a baby. Babies, newborn babies don't really get vaccinated until they're, you know, a few years old. And that baby caught measles and died. Okay, that person, that, that parent brought their child to the GP because their child was sick. Right thing to do. But that child had measles because they hadn't been vaccinated. And it ended up killing somebody else. So it's not, it's not that you should feel bad for not vaccinating your child. You need to assess what is right for your child but you need to be aware of the implications of not vaccinating and taking your child to public places, sending them to school, sending them to the hospital, because a lot of times the people in GP surgeries and hospitals are vulnerable. But yeah, so we're we've lost our elimination status of MMR. And there's a quote here that says, nearly half of the mumps cases this quarter were unvaccinated. So there are still people getting mumps who have been vaccinated. It's, you know, it's going to happen just from the, the nature of vaccinations. They're not 100%. But the fact that half of the mumps cases were people who were unvaccinated 
shows that there is, you know, there is an ability to reduce that number. It's also tricky because we're not taught about boosters as much as you would think we would need to be. I think something like the MMR only lasts, lasts like 10 or so years. You know, it lasts like maybe 12 years maximum. So really, as adults, we should be getting boosters all the time. But you don't really hear about that. I don't know. Have you heard about like getting boosters in adult life? Definitely not. Like I can tell you more about the history of vaccination than I can about anything going on now because that's what we were taught in school. Right. And I can't even remember which vaccine it is that you're supposed to get either before you get to university or meningitis um, when you I get think. there. Mm. Right. They kind of like uh, certainly where I was you know, there was a whole campaign encouraging us to get it. And then it was very difficult to actually, actually get it. Like, yeah. it was like, oh yeah, he, just come to this, um, come sign up at this, on this table. And the table was there for like two hours during lecture time. Like, you know. Mad. And certainly when it comes to the boosters and stuff, I'm not sure which ones I'm supposed to have had mm. at this age. I'm not sure. Because it's the thing that, you know your parents do it up until a certain age or you and then it's just yeah forgotten about but yeah and no one sort of mentions it no one tells you we have all these public health campaigns about all kinds parents of other things for children yeah yeah stuff directed at parents stuff about nutrition and diet mm. and that sort of thing and they don't i don't know like you don't it sounds silly because obviously the answer is well you should be educating yourself the information is out there go look for it but you don't know what you don't know yeah it takes true. someone telling you there's this information that you're missing mm -hmm. you need to know to go look for it yeah definitely and i think as well in the science community as well there is some kind of level of gatekeeping in terms of the general public and scientists some scientists really think that their research is so important that the common person doesn't like would never understand which is complete and utter rubbish like you're i have a degree it here you're telling exactly. me this stuff and i'm understanding you just need to explain it in a way a lay person can get right exactly and a skill a pure like a skill that could be cultivated is being able to explain things that you have knowledge of at different levels that is a skill and if not you... everyone has to do it but as long the, the important information needs to get out there right exactly and and protecting that information from common people and and not helping the lay people you know understand what you're what you're doing is it doesn't just i don't know i don't know how what words you would use but it doesn't just discredit you as a scientist you know that like you're doing your scientific work you're in the community people know what you're doing it doesn't do you it doesn't just do you an injustice that people don't know about your research it also does the people that it impacts injustice, I think. You know, you, you can't think that your work has meaning unless you're making sure that everyone it's intended for understands what is going on. But yeah, so it is important, I think, and I've done this recently, um, is to have your vaccination records. You can ask for them from your GP and then you can see when you were vaccinated and what you were vaccinated with. And then you can look up, you know, MMR boosters for adults and see whether you need to, to have a booster. Um, it's the same with other, other uh, vaccinations that you would have as a child. You can look up the name of the vaccine or the name of the, 
disease that it's vaccinating for and you know see if you need a booster and there's also you know when you travel you're meant to look up vaccines that you're meant to have there's all sorts of um vaccinations that you need if you go to other countries it's the same thing here if you're staying in your own country you you need to make sure that you're you're protected not just for yourself as we're back to not just for yourself it's not just for you don't care if you don't care but do you care about other people endemic diseases have more of an impact than one might think in the uk but there is a whole long list of endemic diseases you can also type in to google things like emerging diseases in the uk and see a long list but we definitely um covered a lot of viruses and bacteria but there are also fungal infections again for hiv sufferers or hiv people with hiv it's very dangerous to get fungal infection because it's compromising your immune system again and then also we're not the only ones that have endemic diseases in our population animals do too and we should do a whole episode sometimes sometime on animal diseases That'd we be should animal diseases very very broad and interesting it's very important to know about all these thingies and just i think having just even a little tiny bit of awareness and context helps to understand so many other aspects of microbiology and i hope that learning about endemic diseases of the uk has opened your eyes to what you might be missing um, and encourage you to to look into it or ask a question you know if you want me to talk about any other disease i am willing to do that i love talking about diseases and researching diseases <laughs> um, but yeah so just to list again to reiterate just in case anyone does have any other questions about endemic diseases endemic diseases can include things like tuberculosis hiv measles mumps rubella hepatitis c mrsa so that's a resistant form of staphylococcus aureus highly resistant gonorrhea gonorrhea is becoming a superbug in the community which means that it is completely untreatable and uh, raging through the communities in um, in a lot of ways meningitis there's forms of meningitis and encephalitis that have big impacts covid19 is also potentially going to become endemic uh, influenza of many varieties there's lots of different types of influenza at least one type is endemic in the uk herpes hpv chickenpox and then other tick-borne diseases there's uh looping ill disease which i found on google which i thought had a very cool name and is apparently endemic in the uk but i've never heard of it so clearly that needs to be talked about more and then veterinary diseases such as um, diseases that impact red squirrels which obviously is a very important thing to consider because our poor baby red squirrels are under attack from all sides so yes any of those take your fancy drop me a message uh, there'll also be a Q&A in a few days time so if you want to ask a question there you can do that but yes Esme closing closing thoughts closing question anything how do you think we should go about educating the population on diseases like this and the importance of uh, vaccinations and other you know infrastructure and other like hygiene all the things that will decrease their severity 
um, mm -hmm. you know, decrease their impact. Bearing in mind, it presumably has to start at a fairly young age without just terrifying everybody. Yeah. I like the morbid and the scary. So obviously my take is always going to be a little bit morbid and a little bit scary because I like that drama. But you don't have to teach disease in a scary way. You don't have to teach awareness in a scary way. You don't have to scare people into believing you. And I think that's what a lot of institutions and governments miss is that you don't have to frighten people. You just need to make them aware that what they're doing can be dangerous. So like you say, education at a young age, very, very important. And I also think that, as I mentioned before, less gatekeeping in terms of who has the knowledge? You know, you go to your doctor for knowledge. They don't know everything. Don't be afraid to question them and to, you know, to bring up the fact, hey, this disease happens in the UK. What, why aren't I getting vaccinated for it? What can I do to be safer? Because a GP's job isn't just to, you know, find out what's wrong with you. It's to direct you to resources that are going to help you understand this world that we're living in. Don't be afraid to ask people questions, ask scientists questions. I mean, I follow a huge number of scientists on Twitter and Instagram, and they're constantly posting about their research. If you're interested in the subject, the information is there. So maybe less teaching specific things and more teaching people to be proactive in their health. You know, they're like, oh, I'm not a doctor, so I wouldn't know. It doesn't matter if you're not a doctor. Sometimes the doctors get it wrong and that's okay. They're just human beings. They're not gods. You know, we can't lift them up onto a pedestal. Sometimes you know what's best for your body and sometimes you know what's best for your health, but you need to be informed and you need to be proactive in finding that information. Like you say, you never would have thought to look up your vaccination records and see what vaccinations you needed boosters for. Don't be, don't be shy about asking questions and finding out more. I also think that it would be very useful for doctors and surgeries and, and things like that to give you your medical records or have like a digital version of your medical records that you can access whenever you want so you can see your vaccination records you can see your treatment history you know all, all the things of your health it's it's back to that you know you go to a gp to get your problem fixed you don't understand what the problem is you don't understand what the treatment's doing you just take the treatment and you hope it works i don't think that's that's right and, it, you know, it's a similar thing in terms of people go to the doctors because they have a virus and they ask for medicine to get better. You know, it, that's not going to work. You don't get antibiotics for viruses. You get an antibiotics for, for bacteria. We need to be, we need to increase the transparency surrounding health, I think, overall. Not no, don't know whether that would be effective because there's still going to be people who just don't care or aren't invested or... Um, see what they want to see and hear what they want to hear they don't look for a balanced view but it's still important that enough people are told and learn to be proactive and to learn these sort of in school you're taught less to question and more to listen you need to question more guys just just ask questions just be inquisitive and we need to teach that and we need to enforce that more than we need to s enforce sit and listen and do your homework and then come into school and do that day after day because it's it's so it wears you down be curious just be be curious ask questions
I wonder if you have any thoughts. Let me flip it over to you. What do you think can be done? I think I agree with you about teaching people to sort of take control of like, you know, learning stuff for themselves and being mm. informed. And I think there should be some level of scientific literacy that mm -hmm. is greater than what we're taught in school, I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I remember being taught all of the sort of the, the, the terminology for how graphs work and that sort right. of thing. And I remember bits and pieces of it, not all of it. But like you said, it's very sit and listen. It's here are the bullet points mm -hmm. that you need to remember for the exam. And I don't feel like I would be able to sort of, if like if I, the same way that with uh, literature related stuff, I can go on to JSTOR or, um, you know, any mm -hmm. other, I, you know, I can find academic articles on lit, lit, uh, literary topics. Yeah. And I understand what's going on. I understand how to read them. I understand mm -hmm. how things are set out and how to make sense of them. Mm -hmm. I do, wouldn't, I would not know how to do that with a scientific report. Right. Because I don't feel like I was ever, if I was ever taught, it was at an age where I've now that. forgotten it or it was taught in a way that was focused on the exam. And so I, right. you know, <laughs> Yeah, got rid of that information after time. Right, because I would say that reading a scientific article, finding a scientific article, you described how I would also go about it. You go onto the database or the, the website and you, you scroll and you filter and you look for the topic that you're looking for in the same way. And maybe they're not written the same way. You know, the structure might be different. The language might be different. But, you know, the basics are very similar. But because you were never told what database to look on, how would you ever know that it's there? There's that, but there's also, and maybe this is just sort of a, a problem with a lot of people with arts and humanities mm -hmm. kind of interest is that I see a page full of numbers and graphs and I'm like, mm. ah, no. I mean, no, I no, also no. do. But what you do when you read a scientific paper is you read the introduction and then you read the conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> because to 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 make a article a journal article it has to be formatted in a very specific way your introduction has to contain very cer a certain you know explanation of information and the you know we have introduction methods uh results discussion conclusion so all these parts it's very formulaic and a lot of times you can ignore the methods because you're not going to be completing the methods. You can ignore the results because the results are summarized in the discussion. <laughs> and so a lot of times you can read the discussion if you want that detail and those specific conclusions. But the summary of the discussion is the conclusion and how they got to from the idea of I should do a paper on this to the conclusion is in the introduction. So introduction, conclusion, and then you're like, hmm, I want to know more about that. Read the discussion see the numbers in the graphs no they can go they can be gone don't even worry about them obviously as a scientist i do read the methods and results if i'm trying to determine whether this paper is reliable or not but a lot of times if it's peer-reviewed you would hope mm, that's a whole other discussion you would hope that the peer-reviewing process meant that it was very reliable 
And this is for the purposes of uh, non-scientists. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you you're going to also read a lot of papers for like a dissertation or something, what you would typically do is read introduction, read conclusion, or even just the conclusion in the abstract. So the, the bit that's taken to summarize the entire paper. Um, and you would collate that into a database. And then you would go through, pick the most relevant ones, read them fully, understand them, see if they're appropriate to your research because you want to be you want to be broadly read but well read so you're not going to read every paper that you come across that's related to your topic unless of course it's a very very niche topic so you have to be efficient and smart actually maybe i could talk about that talk about research papers and the research community and that would definitely be peer review and stuff like that because i feel like knowing where your information comes from and, and how it's presented to you is very important in the science community What's coming up next? What's our next episode about? So our next episode is part two of our two-part series on Tlon Ukpa Orbis Tertius. That's a short story by Borges and we're looking at it in relation to stylistics which is the application of linguistics to literature. So we'll be looking at speech and thought presentation and vocalization. Um, so yeah it's very interactive that episode there's resources on um, a google drive which i've linked at the end of the episode on my website um, so if you want to pull those up and have a little look while we talk about the things and esme asks me intense questions about things i don't know about please do yeah so tune in for a interactive episode next time Q&A will be out in a few days' time, so don't be afraid to ask some little questions. Um, that will probably come out at the end of the month, so enjoy that. Um, and see you all, speak to you all next time. Bye. See ya. Thanks for listening to Sparking Connections. For references and further information, find the show notes at anchor.fm slash sparkingconnections or at my website, pleaseholdfor.squarespace.com where you will also find transcripts and links to find us elsewhere on the internet. If you have any questions or comments, then email us at sparkingconnectionspodcast at gmail.com or leave a comment below the episode. 